Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's good to be here. 2016 had a downside to it. We didn't get to Atlanta, so that was, that was, that was bad, really, you know, just didn't get here. But uh, my wife and I have transitioned now, and we're actually being sent from Bethel to live and serve in Europe. And uh, still, I'm still on the senior team at Bethel, but uh, we've been in transition mode. Actually, before I go any further, I feel like I have a word for Stephen and Lindy. I was just, uh, a thought came into my head, so I ran with it. And, uh, you know, kind of a spirit, it felt like, oh, that's a prompting of God. So, um, and um, I don't think it's any coincidence that you're building um, a, new, a new house here. Um, and I know, you know, there are some shifts in your own personal house. And, and that was the case for Solomon, that he built the house of the Lord and his own house. And there are some things going on. Um, but I, I felt that out of that, there was a specific piece um, it said concerning the, 1 Kings 6, 12, and I don't know whether you've done this before, the piece I'm going to give you, um, and if you have, then you can reinforce it, and if you haven't, you can do it for the first time. Uh, concerning this house which you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances, and I actually felt like the Lord wanted to make that simple for you, um, because it can be complex. Uh, you're, you're a son-daughter product of Bethel School of Ministry, and um, the distinctives probably could be summed up in power, presence, and sonship um, would be the distinctives, I would say, of us, that it's the power of God, the presence of God, and us walking as sons and daughters. And, and I felt like the Lord said, if you will walk in that, and will keep all my commandments by walking in them. And then this is, I felt like there was a, um, I, I actually don't know whether whether you've done this here, but I felt like this is the specific bit. Then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I, I felt like what the Lord wanted to say was that there are specific prophetic words that have been given to Bill and Bethel that are now to be applied to you. And that, um, and that they, they are your inheritance um, and that you should you should actually maybe be deliberate about, about reading the prophetic words on Bethel and that out of them there are words for you to walk in in this particular season and that um, as, as, you, as you build the house of the Lord, as you walk in the distinctive of power, presence and, and sonship, that, that those were, there are specific words there that are going to be opened up to you because of who you are. And that you, I don't know whether you've looked at them before. I don't know whether you've thought, well, we have to have our own words. But I felt like there was a season now when you could, um, you know, do the Bobby. Uh, no, it's not Bobby Connor, but I'm trying to think. I, there's a name. The, I, I received that for myself since. And I felt like there was that on this house now uh, as you step into the next, the next season. I thought it was a good word as well. I mean, I would take it. And I, I have a ton of them on my computer, so um, I, I, have, I have access to a, a bundle, probably 10 years' worth of Bethel prophetic words. Um, so uh, I, I'm always, I, I actually very rarely decide what I'm going to preach before I get somewhere, um, just the way I'm, I am. And yesterday I was chatting to Steve and, and said, have you heard my, uh, my last message at Bethel? And he said, no, he hadn't. So 
I figured if he hadn't, then maybe some of you hadn't. And, um, well, sometimes, you know, if a pastor's heard something, they might say, hey, did you hear? And people will go, and I know there'll be some Bethel addicts, and you listen to everything that comes out of Bethel, you know. So, so some of you will have heard it, but we, we were sent from Bethel uh, last year, and the last, my last preach in Bethel before we were sent was December the 11th. And I preached a message at the leader's advance, and Eric asked me to repeat it for the, for the congregation. Uh, it, it was a message that kind of grew out of this, uh, this is the way I'm wired. Sometime in the summer, I started writing some notes. As we, as we made the decision that we were, we were leaving, being sent, and that 15 years in Bethel, uh, living in Reading, was was coming to an end, and so we, we, were, we knew we were doing that. So I just scribbled down. I thought, well, 15 years. I wonder if I've got 15 messages. That's kind of me, you know. If there's 15 themes, if there's 15 things that God has said or done. And I, and I made some notes, and I, I put, them, they were, put them to one side in my computer, so to speak. Kind of forgot about them. Um, then I went on a trip. I was in Stockholm, actually, at the Awakening Europe, and, and got to preach there. And I was on my way back, and I was due to preach at the Leaders Advance, and I had actually had a really nice message that I'd even I'd even started to do nice diagrams, and I was going to whiteboard it, and I was I was more prepared than I usually am, and then I woke up at four o'clock in the morning, which was either God or jet lag. It's, it, it really is honestly very hard to tell the difference sometimes for me, and uh, and I God sort of reminded me. He said, "Look, you stayed in room fifteen fifteen in Stockholm, which I did, which is." I don't think I've ever stayed in a 1515 before. So, and, and I felt like the Lord said, I want you to preach that. And so instead of doing the other message, I, I preached at the leader's advance. It's sort of 15 things I'd learned in 15 years. Although at that point, I only had 14. I hadn't got the 15th. And then the 15th kind of emerged and, and has, has ended up being a kind of a, almost a message in its own right and a way of summing up my, my time permanently living in America, and now we get the privilege of traveling. So I, uh, I preached it there at the Leaders Advance, and then Eric said, hey, I really want you to preach the three Sunday services on uh, the Sunday you leave. And so I, I, I preached the same message, and I, I call it, Do you get, did you get what you came here for? And uh, obviously it's, it's me, but I'm really saying it to everybody. And it's not about Bethel, it's about anybody who goes to a conference, a revival, a school, a ministry, did you get what you came here for? You know, did you get it? Because we can very easily become sort of conference revival, you know, junkies of this thing. You know, I mean, I know people who've done a, an Irish school, a Bethel school, and a Randy Clark school. You know, it's like, all right, okay. It's like kind of going to, you know, all the Ivy Leagues and doing the same degree at all of them. It's like <laughs> sooner or later you need to graduate and do something with this thing that you went to get. So. So uh, Steve said he hadn't heard it, so I, I thought I'd, uh, I'm going to run with it. Uh, it. It begins, in a way, with um, the journey, kind of the journey out and the journey, and the journey home, which is kind of curious to me, the way that God speaks. I, love, I do love the way he speaks. I, I feel like life's a journey. It's a little phrase that my, my two adult sons are very sarcastic about, because they'll often say to me, it's all part of the journey, Dad, and... Um, and it's, it's their sort of honoring sarcasm. The man wearing's love language. We have six love languages in the man wearing household. Number six is sarcasm. It is not flesh tearing sarcasm, but it is sarcasm. Um, and uh, if you ever want to be a friend of my wife, you will, you will have to understand 
the gift of sarcasm. It's, uh, it's just part of our lives. But I, I do love the way he speaks. And I, I went to Bethel personally, um, although it was obviously both of us. But I went with Genesis chapter 12. I didn't go to Bethel to be on staff. I actually didn't really go to do school of ministry. I did school of ministry to get a visa so my wife could live in Reading where God had told her that she was to live for the next season of her life and to pursue her own personal journey in that season. The last thing I wanted to do was go to school, to be honest. I just finished a master's at Cambridge. I was done with school. And the last thing I really wanted to do was go to a school full of young, kind of crazy young people who were going to sit and roll around the floor and stuff like that, which is, uh, I really, it really wasn't a, a plan, but it's turned out to be one of the great seasons of my life. And we traveled to Reading, Bethel Reading, four days after 9-11. 9-11 in 2001, that is, not a random 9-11 in another year. That year, and we flew into the problem, not away from the problem, so to speak. But God took us on that journey remarkably. And the Lord gave me Genesis 12 very early on and because and, I asked him, I said, show me a man whose journey of faith will inspire my journey of faith. And he took me to Genesis 12, leave the land of your fathers. I'm going to summarize it. I'm going to actually butcher it but it says leave the land of your fathers boom boom go to a place called Bethel east of the mountains near some giant trees give or take that's what that chapter says that's fairly clear and live in a tent we didn't actually live in a tent but in a funny sort of way um, it, it did become a temporary uh a temporary home and uh, housewives and things like that. We didn't end up with a, a permanent home that we was bought and paid for. It's just that it was funny the way that God actually did that. And so I knew that that was our journey out. And then about August last year, I was getting on a plane. It was actually our first trip after we'd announced to the congregation and network that we were moving back to Europe. I got on a plane and somebody posted on social media, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 8, I knew, but I didn't, it wasn't mine. But it became mine that day as I read it. And just a, you know, a few highlights um, basically says, Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Now, there, there are relationships between the two lands, but the verse in isolation is distinct from the other one. Leave the land, go to the land. And it became very clear, okay, you're on this. And then uh, a, number of, a number of verses, but I really do like verse 7. You see, the other one was at, you know, Bethel, east of the mountains. And now we have a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, which sounds much more England than Northern California. And, and I love the both. So um, it's like, oh, that actually sounds like it describes England very well. A land of wheat and barley, which for me describes European bread, which is a very important part of anybody's diet. Um, and uh, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, have built good houses, it goes on to say. Um, it talks of, um, um, he led you through a great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. Well, this August last year, California was in a drought. It isn't anymore. It's now in a deluge. But it's, it, it, it was very significant then. And it just goes on, and it's your God who will give you the power to make wealth, etc. And, and I just share that because I love the way that God speaks. Um, and sometimes he just is as, you know, as clear as to give a passage of Scripture, and you get to read it and interpret it. So I know that our, our season in America, a 15-year season, was bookended by, by clear words of the Lord. 
And so as you listen to me, I do want to just encourage you. I'm not preaching this for you to go, oh, I like Paul's story. I'm preaching this so that you review yours. I'm really not interested in you going, oh, you know, wow, isn't that amazing? Look at Paul's step of faith. Look, he did this, he did that. I'm really not interested in that. I'm interested in you looking at yours and reviewing your story and to ask yourself the question, did I get what I came here for? You know, no one's been coming to this church for more than 10 years because it's not 10 years old. So you came here for something. Did you get it? Did you get what you came here for? And of course, many people these days do travel to revivals and schools and so that is the question. So 15 points, 15 messages, however you want to, however you want to call it. I do believe every one of them you could probably preach. Um, but I, I like to put some content in a message, you know. You get to church once a week, so you might as well have 15 points when you could have had one. I, I'm really bad at preaching a one-point message and then telling 10 stories that illustrate the same thing. I, I get bored with my own message. I, just the way I am. So, all right. So number one. As I've been at Bethel for 15 years, and there's no question in my mind that it is the number one, and that is, did you learn to worship? And as we prepared to leave, people would say to us, wow, you're going to miss Brian and Jen, you're going to miss Bethel worship. It's like, yeah, that's not what's worrying me. That's not my concern. My concern is I don't want to miss him. That's, that's the most important thing to me. And actually our experience, in fact, since we left, is that we've experienced some stunning worship um, in places that we might not have expected to experience it. And I think that some of that is this, we learn to worship. Now, you have to understand something, I can't sing. Uh, you don't want to stand next to me in worship, it's just not the best place. My wife has to these days, but for 23 years she didn't, she was in a worship band. I can tell you the Sunday we went to another church and she stood next to me, she said, I'd forgotten how bad your voice is. <laughs> or words to that effect. It's all right, she loves me. I play CDs well, I play MP3s very well. But here's the real thing. It's got nothing to do with whether you can sing or not. It's got nothing to do with that. It's have you learned to worship? And for me, this, this really has become a huge part of me and my life. I, I don't want a day to go by without a song in my head of being able to worship him. It's, it's curious for me that I've ended up with a little bit of a reputation that I'm a little known for closing worship. And I love to do that. It's one of my favorite things to do. In fact, Brian was going to fly me into a conference just to close worship. And I am in, I'm in LA later this year and I'm pretty sure they'll, they'll let me do that. But as I as I discovered that people recognized that I could do this, I started asking myself a question, how do I do that? How do I, how do, I do what people are saying I'm good at doing and I realize something? It's because before I close worship, I'm always in worship first. And you have to do that. For church leaders, you must be that. Don't just walk in and go, oh, you know, let's just do this thing. So number one, have you learned to worship? You know, in, in many respects, and I probably mentioned it in other places, but you can get just about everything that you get here online these days except two things. The corporate experience of the presence of God and face-to-face -face relationship with other human beings. Everything else you can get online. Now the problem is that some people think because you can get it online, we don't need church anymore. Well, we, we don't need church to come and be preached at, but we do need church to come and experience Him and have face-to-face -face experience of other people. So did you learn to worship? Have you learned to worship? This worshipping house always has been, always will be. It was birthed out of a worshipping house. So if you come here, this is a place you come to worship. And 
Don't think that it's the warm-up to the main event. It's not. We went to a church, actually, and there was a pastor there. He always liked to switch it around because he had a group of his congregation that never quite arrived on time. I know it's never happened here. It's not a part of problem here. And uh, so what he used to do sometimes was preach first and worship second, and people used to get upset with him because they'd miss half the preach. His point was very clear. You, well, one, you need to get here on time, but actually preaching isn't the main thing. Don't skip worship just to get the preacher. Actually, make sure you're in worship. So number one, did you learn to worship? I could talk a long time about it, but I'll leave it there. Number two, did you take care of your identity? Did you take care of being a son or a daughter of the King of Kings? And not only that, but are you still taking care of that? Jesus will be known for all eternity as the son of David. His identity is a son. I actually believe that there's only one identity for any of us, son or daughter. The rest are roles carried out by being sons and daughters. And if you don't get the son or daughter piece, every other role that you carry out, you'll fail in. You'll be dysfunctional. You'll be a dysfunctional father or mother if you haven't taken care of being a son or a daughter. We have to take care of this. I love that, that we're alive in this generation of the message of the Father, heart, and sonship. I love, love, love that. I love the inner healing. I love the books written on it. From Father, Heart of God by Floyd McCung 40 years ago, right the way through to the present day and everything that's written in between. I, I, I love it. But we need to be careful that we don't get such fam so familiar with the language that we actually fail to really make sure that we've taken care of this issue all the time. And, and Jesus will be known for all eternity as the son of an adulterous murderer. The son of David, which tells you something. The quality, of the, the quality of the son is not dependent on the quality of the father. You take care of you. Take care of being a son. Take care of being a daughter. I personally believe that every problem on the planet is related to this one issue. Africa is the richest continent on the planet, but the wealth is not in the hands of sons and daughters. If it was, then there wouldn't be the poverty in that nation. And if you happen to be an individual, single girl or single boy, and you're looking for a, a wife, take care of being a son or a daughter first, and you'll find your husband or wife. Stop looking for the perfect wife or perfect husband and look for the son or daughter inside. Because I know something. Girls don't want to marry a boy. They want to marry a son. I could prove it to you. It's not a problem on this planet that will not be taken care of by us settling this issue. We have to take care of this. The Father sent a son. And he sent a son so that we would be restored in relationship with the Father and become sons and daughters of the Father so that we would carry out our assignment, which is to reveal the Father. So have you taken care of your identity? Don't write it off. Don't think, oh, I did that, I did that in school and ministry or I read that book. No, it's an ongoing journey, it's something that we can never put down. Did you take care of your identity? Number three. Do you believe your story? I think one of the great dangers in the church is that people like me come along and preach, tell stories. And the easiest thing in the world is to compare yourself and beat yourself up and to look at the story that's being told from up here and miss your story. Your story and you should be the center of your universe. It should be the center of your history on this planet. Not mine, yours. See, I've for years beaten myself up by comparing myself with the guy or the girl with the microphone on the stage. And I've never won one of those battles ever. I've always lost them. They're always better than me. 
I've always done something better with their life, with their story. And I started to believe my story. Started to embrace my story of who I am. And you need to do the same. See, people need to encounter you and your story. It's the most powerful message you have is your life story of who you are, how you got to where you are, how you beat this battle, how you won that. Do you believe your story? See, stop comparing yourself and embrace your story. How well do you know your story? I know that's a crazy question. But actually, we actually need to take note of our story. We need to be, if, if not journaling it physically, in our, in our heads, in our minds. Because you'll miss so much. The motto of my life is, he wastes nothing, he gets you ready. It's Romans 8.28. It's my translation, the Paul Manwaring translation. I've translated two verses in the Bible, that's it. Leave the rest to the experts. But that one, he wastes nothing. He gets you ready. You see, if you don't take account of your story, you're not able to see, oh, that season my life, look what he did with it. See, I think it's now, what, 30, 35 years ago, I walked out of an intensive care unit as a staff nurse in an intensive care unit. 35 years ago. That's the last time I practiced as a nurse. I now teach medical healing conferences where doctors and nurses get medical credits for listening to me. 35 years out of date, but they listen to me. And they get credits for it. Why? Because he wastes nothing. He gets you ready. See, the problem is too many of us live in regret of the things we didn't do instead of embracing the things that we did do or the things that have happened to us. And if you live in regret, it will invalidate your testimony. Because you'll be so focused on what you regret that you'll miss what he did. And regret is the greatest enemy of the testimony you will ever have in your life because regret will take you back here instead of bringing your testimony forward and activating it in the presence. You'll be thinking of what you didn't do and where you failed and when you turn left instead of turning right, instead of realizing he wastes nothing, he gets you ready. And I have season after season of my life. Who would ever have believed or dreamed that me learning strategic planning in the prison service of England and Wales I would one day use that skill, that gift, that training to be a part of a team developing a strategy for the evangelization of Europe. You can't, you can't plan that ahead, but he can. And every one of you, you have a story, you have a journey, you have family, you have inheritance, you have victories, you have defeats, you have battles. You have those journeys. They're your journey. They're your story. So don't compare your story to mine or anyone else's. Start to embrace your story. Use mine to feed yours. Use mine to encourage it. But it's your story. I'm actually, I was in, I've been invited to preach an evangelistic uh, meeting on a Sunday and they wrote to me last week and they said, do you have a title? And I wrote back and I, I gave them the title. I said, have you taken your place in history? The pastor wrote to me, he said, oh, I'm a bit surprised. I thought you preached the prodigal son for evangelism. Well, I, said, I do actually. I'm going to use that, but, but it's no point in me putting that out there. Put this one out. Invite people to take their place in history because that's what everybody wants to do. Whether they believe in Jesus or not, everyone wants to know that they took their place in history. So take your place in history and believe your story and embrace your story. Number four. Have you learned to embrace mystery? This, is, this has been a battle in my Christian life. I have an analytical mind. I, I want to know, you know all the details. I don't like to not know the answer. That doesn't make me happy at all. But that all changed. January 2004, Bethel, Sunday morning, Bill Johnson walked in. 
He stood in front of us and he said, My father is dying of cancer. That's a mystery. God is good. That's a revelation. I will not sacrifice the revelation of his goodness on the altar of human reasoning to give myself an answer to a mystery I was never intended to understand. And the light bulb went on. See, up until then, it had been like, oh, why don't people get healed? I should know the answer to why people don't get healed. Why should I? Why should I know the answer to everything? I have this little kind of idea in my head. It's the TV program. Uh, it's just this idea. I, maybe somebody will pick it up with me. I have a little discussion going on at the moment. It's called Designer God. Not Designer God. Design a God. The idea is I'd go out on the streets and I'd meet people who don't necessarily believe in God. And I'd say, hey, if there was a God, what would he be like? I'm pretty certain that by and large they would say he would live in a place that's better than us. Or she, even. Just to be controversial. <laughs> he or she would know the future. He or she would live in perfect relationships and he or she would know things that we don't know. And I'd be able to say, congratulations, you just designed my God. But the real point is this. I think that atheists would design a God who knew things that we didn't know. So why do we have a history in the church that we think we should know all the answers? We shouldn't. See, we need to learn to live in mystery. There is a place of mystery that is so powerful that if we would only embrace it, it's almost incomprehensible what God will do with a people who are prepared to live in mystery. And and I, I really do believe that it's time for us to fully embrace this. And you know... If somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to, there is this curious temptation to make one up. And church leaders have done that forever. And so it's like, well, why did Mrs. Jones die of cancer? And they'll kind of make up some pathetic theological kind of thing. You know what it's, it's built? That answer is built out of pride and deception. And pride and deception can be occupied by the enemy. But I don't know cannot. I don't know is cannot give a foothold to the enemy he can't occupy it there's nothing he can do with it have you learned to live in mystery he's good number five he's good now that's not relative that's not well he's good he's gooder than other gods no he's good it's his absolute standard he is good he created everything in the garden and he turned over his shoulder and he goes it's good And it was his standard. It only became relative when man ate of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. It became relative then. It wasn't relative when he created. Incidentally, just for the ladies, because I'm feeling kind to the ladies today. I added a female God just now as well. (laughs) Spirit of compassion came over me. There was only one thing in the garden that wasn't good. You know what it was then? It wasn't good for man to be alone. So he created woman to restore the standard of his goodness. There you go. The girls can go home now. They've had, they've had their message for the day. It's in the book. I didn't make it up. He, he, he gave us you. Women were given to man to restore the standard of his goodness. Without you, the standard was, was dropped. Anyway, that's the sum total of all my teaching nearly on women. In He's good. 
And we owe the world an encounter with a good God, not a relatively good God, not a good God compared to somebody else. We owe the world an encounter with God who is good. It's who he is. It's his absolute identity. It's his absolute standard. You know, when Moses said to God, show me your glory, what did God say? He said, I'll show you my goodness. Because glory and goodness cannot be separated. The more you understand one, the more you understand the other. He is good and we owe the world an encounter with that goodness. And we need to grab it and embrace it. Number six, life-changing for me. But have you embraced the power of prophecy? Prophetic word is an encounter with a God who knows your future. And not only knows your future, but knows the future world that you will occupy. See, he's prophesying you into a world. And you might not know what that world looks like, but he does. And on February the 4th, 2012, I was given a prophetic word that changed my life. Utterly, completely, and totally changed me, what I love, what I believe for, and ultimately has caused us to be sent to Europe. Because up until then, Paul was known for administration, gift of government, teaching on strategy, some glory thrown in, some sonship thrown in, a few other things, but nobody had ever called Paul Mamoring an evangelist until that night. And Mario Murillo said, Paul, stand up. You're going to preach in stadiums, accompanied by signs and miracles. You'll raise up young evangelists, and God will restore to you the reason why he brought you into the kingdom. I am fairly sure that nobody else in that room believed that other than Mario, maybe believed it. I think Bill did. Chris was there. He was holding me up. I'm pretty sure he was thinking, you've got the wrong guy here, Mario. And I was definitely kind of not quite sure except one little seed. One little seed. God will restore to you the reason why he brought you into the kingdom. Because in 1975, in a meeting led by an evangelist, I heard God call me on a journey that ultimately has led me here. That word would, yeah, it was a crazy season. Bill on Sunday nights, he'd, I see Sunday mornings as well, he'd put his hand on my back and say, Paul, you're doing offering, do an altar call. I don't really know how to do an altar call, actually, in all honesty. I didn't. I'd watched a few people, but I didn't know how to do it. He'd send me up, and I, I started to sense who was in the room, even. I got bailed out once or twice by the young evangelists. I'd kind of get them to come up and help me. And I'd sweated for 20 minutes on an altar call and they'd come up and wave one hand and there's about 10 hands go. I was like, how did you do that? And a little while after that, Bill received a phone call from Reinhard Bonnke. Bonnke told Bill, I'm, I'm starting a school of evangelism. I would like you to send me your 10 best young evangelists. And Bill told me I was going. I told Bill, I'm not one of your 10, your best, your young or your evangelist, Bill. <laughs> Seriously, I did. He told me I was going. I got to go to Reinhard Bonnke's school and sit in a room with 99 evangelists and me, because there were 100 of us. See, the power of the prophetic changed my life, changed the course of my life. I mean, the side note of that is, I got that word at 54, so it's never too late. He likes giving new gifts to people. He just likes messing us up. But the power of the prophetic. See, when that prophetic word was given... There were things that hadn't happened. Ben Fitzgerald hadn't heard from God to start awakening Europe. There were, other, there were other things that I didn't know about. There were people who had been praying all their lives for a strategist to help develop a strategy for the evangelization of Europe. I don't know any of this. But a word triggered something inside of me and took me on a journey. 
I want to encourage every one of you. If you've got prophetic words, take them out of your back pocket. Blow the dust off. Take a look at them. If you don't have a prophetic word that makes you a little bit nervous, you need one. You need one. They're meant to make you nervous because they're meant to declare a you that hasn't yet walked this earth. Because a prophetic word is an encounter with the God who knows you and knows your future. If you, if you don't have one that makes you nervous, you've probably got a bunch of words of knowledge. But the ones that make you nervous, take them out of your back pocket. Take a look at them. Blow the dust off and start to go, come on. Take the prophetic word, Paul said to Timothy. Take the prophetic word and with it fight. Fight. I encourage every one of you to do that. Get, either get hungry for one or blow the dust off the ones that you've already got. And my experience is this. If either a prophetic word is incredibly dramatic or it gets repeated a lot, I think it's probably got something of God on it. I've known people who go, I've had that word so many times, I think I'll shut it down. It's, it's, it's causing too much anxiety in me. No, that's what it's meant to do. I had people around me saying, that prophetic word, you should make it happen. Why don't you rent a stadium? Why don't you go and do this? Like, no, I'm not meant to do that. I know I'm not meant to do that. This has to be God. The first time I walk on a stadium, I know it has to be God. I can't have made it happen. And sure enough, God would do that. Have you realized the power of prophecy to change your life? Number seven, faith. I know it's hugely obvious, but it's not that. We're members of the Christian faith, which means something. We need to live our lives standing in front of the impossible. See, it's the only place that you can test your faith is when you're facing the impossible. My wife and I have prayed now for countless people and some here who've had infertility. Every time I do it, it's like, oh, I, 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 it's a risk in this. And there has to be. But we have to exercise our faith by standing in front of things that are impossible. And if you're not, I encourage you, find something impossible and stand in front of it. We, we have to learn that. We're members of the Christian faith. We're not members of the Christian fact. The f Christian faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Abraham was a man who was looking for a city that had foundations. whose builder and maker was God. He never found a city. But he's the father of faith. If he'd found a city, he'd be the father of finding cities. He's not. He's the father of faith. And he invites us to do the same, to walk by faith and not by sight. I encourage every one of you, find something impossible, stand in front of it and speak the word of God. Have you learned to walk by faith? Number eight, how he governs. I remember when Bill first said, Paul, heaven's government's family. It set me off on a journey to try and work out what that meant. And I realized it didn't just mean that the grandkids could run up and down in church and do what they liked. It wasn't, it wasn't that. I started to see that the book from beginning to end is a story of a God who wants his family. A God who wants his family back. A God who sent his son to win his family back. A God who has a plan for his family to live together in all eternity. But the church has too often built governmental structures about rules instead of about relationship. And it's what I said earlier. You can get all this online except two things. The corporate experience of him and the face-to-face -face relationship with other people. I come across churches. They cancel service in the summer on a Sunday. Like they've had to fight somehow to do it, persuade the board and all that, so they can go to the beach or go to the park. And I'm thinking, now that's church. Because what they've done is they've said that family is not the sideshow, but it's the main event. 
Relationship's the main event. It's what we're meant to do. And when I started to discover that, I started to see that it affected how you lead organizations. I started to see that it really is all about the purpose of kingdom government. Because kingdom government's purpose is the creation of a family, a community, a society. That's what it's all about. It's not about rules and bylaws and stuff. You might need them, but the purpose is family, relationship. Number one, not the sideshow, but the main event. Number nine, have you learned to live your life looking for the gold? Looking for the treasure. Whether it's in people or circumstances or nations or continents, have you learned? I love the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man looking for a pearl. And when he finds the pearl, he buys, sells everything he has and buys the field. I think we've got it wrong. I think we've thought that the kingdom was the pearl. I don't think it is. I think the kingdom of heaven is a man looking. I think it's a man looking. Do you live your life looking for pearls? Do you live your life looking for treasure? About this time last year, we were beginning our personal kind of final decisions among, you know, and talking to people about moving back to Europe. And we found some people gathering around us who were telling us things like, well, the fruit in Europe's not very big and the enemy is big. So the fruit's small, the enemy's big. And we looked at each other and said, that's funny, that's not what we think. We think the fruit's big and the enemy's small. Depends what you look for. What are you looking for? See, I mean, it's, it's not clever to point out what's wrong with somebody else. But the kingdom of heaven calls out what's right, looks for the gold, looks for the treasure. And that's what people need. We're all good at beating ourselves up. We need people to call us out, to look for the gold, to look for the treasure, to look for what's beautiful, look for what's true, look for what's lovely, look for what's of good report. We need that more than ever today, don't we? When people so easily slip into saying what's wrong instead of saying what's right. Have you learned to live that way? Because that's what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom of heaven looks like people who are looking. Looking for pearls, looking for gems, looking for diamonds. Looking for reasons to say yes and not reasons to say no. Have you learned to look for the gold? It's, it's Bethel. It's Bethel's prophetic culture, which I absolutely adore it's the prophetic culture that's saying, no, let's prophesy what's going to happen that's good, not what's bad. I mean, it really isn't clever to say there's going to be another earthquake in California. Gosh, that doesn't take a prophetic genius, does it? They seem to happen. The world seems to have this stuff that's going on. You know, it's, it's crazy, really. So let's look for the good stuff. It's related. Number 10, I wrote a book on it, but it's, it's really important to me. It's all about glory. It's Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And to realize this, that glory isn't this thing that's out there, but it's this thing that's in here. That you were created for my glory, says Isaiah. That you have a glory, says Psalm 16. That you're a king who's going to take your glory with you to heaven through gates made of pearl. It's what the Bible says. I've heard preachers for years, glory being this weighty thing or being some supernatural cloud that sweeps into a building. I've been in that building. I get it. I understand it. I'm okay with it. It's exciting. And I kind of understand the weighty thing. But between that and that, I have a glory and you have a glory. And your glory is that you reveal, reflect and point to Him. Your assignment on earth is that. It's your glory. It's your eternal value because you reveal the Father. And it's not complicated. 
It's not difficult. The nine fruits of the Spirit, they have a glory on them. And every one of you has revealed one of them at least today. Some of you walk in the room, you bring love in the room. Some of you, you bring joy in the room. Some of you bring peace in the room. You bring God into the room. You reveal Him. It's your glory. It's your assignment on earth to reveal the Father, to reveal His glory. The earth will be filled, not the church. The earth will be filled. You fill the earth, you'll get the church with it. Fill the church, you're not going to get the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. It's our assignment. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory. The trouble is that for years, all we've really done is said, repent from sin instead of repent unto glory. You repent from sin, but you repent unto glory. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Repent from sin, but repent unto glory. Repent unto your God-given assignment and destiny. Because repentance is as much toward, about turning towards as it is turning away from. Glory. Number 11. Revival must lead to reformation. It must. Tragedies of some of the recent revivals are places like Pensacola that saw two, three million people saved, but a city wasn't changed. Toronto, they would say the same, John and Carol. Revivals must lead to reformation. The Welsh revival led to reformation of the way people did business in society. It affected the coal mines. It affected the bars. It affected the jails. It affected society. Revival must lead to reformation. We can't just have conference renewal. We've got to have congregational reveal, but we've got to have societal transformation. The river in Ezekiel, I love the river in Ezekiel. It flows from a temple. I could teach on the temple. The river that flows is a revival, but it creates the fertile land, which is an inheritance for the generations to come. It changes the land. It changes everything. True revival must lead to reformation. And your revival, your personal revival, must lead to personal reformation. It reforms the way you think, live, and do life because of the presence, the power, the person of Jesus Christ. Revival must lead to reformation. Do you love the gospel? Oh, the gospel. It's, I, I used to think, you know, I, I've always said something like this. You know, I, I love the Bible. I... I quote scripture. I read the word, but the gospel's for the evangelists. That word got kind of left out there. No, the, the gospel's for all of us. It's good news. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And it was Tuesday, September the 27th, 2012, when I sat in a room and listened to Reinhard Bonnke preach. He said, I'm going to preach to you as if there's a million lost souls in the room. And he did. Some kind young lady on my team had saved me a seat on the second row when I was trying to hide at the back. Because I didn't want anyone to know that I wasn't an evangelist in that school. Like they might send me out on the streets and expect me to do something. <laughs> and I'm sitting on the second row. And Bonky preached and I cried. Because I fell in love with the gospel. This beautiful, powerful, wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing like it. Have you fallen in love with it? I don't, there's a couple of things I don't like. I don't like people to call me a fool and I don't like to offend people. It's kind of ironic that somewhere I got told I was an evangelist. I'm supposed to preach something that's good news to some, 
foolishness to others and offensive to others. But we have to love the gospel. When we love the gospel, we won't be as worried about offense on foolishness because we'll realize it's good news. Have you fallen in love with the gospel? I love Luke 15. I love, 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 love Luke 15. I'm in love with it. It's the gospel within the gospel. It's the centerpiece other than the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to understand it all. But is there a part of it that you so love that it's transformed you? Number 13. I'm apostolic. And so are you. Trouble is, the word's been perverted. See, the teacher, well, let's start with the pastor. The pastor's job's to make you pastoral. The prophet's job's to make you prophetic. The evangelist's job's to make you evangelistic. The teacher's job's to make you a teacher. But somewhere with the apostle, we seem to think that the apostle's just the big guy on the stage. But the apostle's job's to make you apostolic. Because apostolic means that you were sent from heaven to earth to make earth look, taste, behave and believe like heaven. You're apostolic. Apostolic's not a hierarchical structure. Apostolic is an army of the sent ones who are sent to make another place like heaven. You're apostolic. It's your assignment. We have to get this. And even if you haven't found your apostle, don't worry about it. Don't worry about finding an apostle on earth today. Maybe it is Bill. Maybe it's Cheyenne. Maybe it's Randy Clark. Maybe it's Heidi Baker. It, it doesn't matter. If you haven't found your apostle on earth, read Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is the first apostle. And if you believe in him, come under his leadership, his guidance, his teaching. If you do what he did, say what he said, go where he went, you're apostolic. And I'm not telling you to make a name badge and walk around going, I am Apostle X. <laughs> Even if it works like it does for me, it's, it has a ring, Apostle Paul has a flow. <laughs> but I'm not one. Or I'm not saying I'm one. But I am apostolic and so are you. And we, we need to grab this because otherwise we will just allow that word to be left for a group of people that don't know what to do with it. You're apostolic. Number 14, be me. Uh, you don't need to be me. I need to be me. You need to be you. I remember listening to a cassette tape. I wore it out in the 1970s. Some of you, that's an ancient way of listening to music and talks and stuff like that. I wore it out. It was Mike Wonky, Christian comedian. I know there's been some controversy about him. I really don't care. He taught me something I'll never forget. He told the story of how when he got saved, he went to a Dave Wilkerson meeting, so he bought a Dave Wilkerson suit. He came out of that meeting, and he was struggling because he didn't feel right in it, and he heard God say, I want you to be you for me. I want you to bloom where you're planted. See, I've got to be me, and you've got to be you. So I battled a couple of things in my life. I battled comparison. See, if I came here today and I said, I think they want Bill. And he stands scarily close to the edge, doesn't he? He does it all the time. He pauses. He tells funny stories. If I tried to be Bill, you get a really bad Bill today. And you get none of me. See, you need me. And I need you. Shame will stop that. See, if I'm walking in shame, then I will think that I am less than I was created to be. And if I walk in shame, I won't try and give you me. I'll try and give you a fake me. See, you've got to be you. 
You've got to bloom where you're planted. You've got to be you for him. He needs you to be you. He needs me to be me. He needs me to take my unique place on this planet, being me. Being comfortable in my own skin. Did you get that? Did you get that? Did you get what you came here for? To be you. To be fully you. Shame will tell you what you're not and keep you from the one voice that can tell you who you are. It will do that. It's the story of Cinderella. Cinderella, the maid of the ashes. Her identity was in the ashes. The wicked sisters kept her from the father. So the Holy Spirit, or fairy godmother, showed up and took her to the ball to reveal who she was. See, shame will tell you, you're the maid of the ashes. And keep you from the father who will say, you're the belle of the ball. Those slippers, they were made for you. They look good on you. Got to be you. Don't compare. Probably one of the most profound experiences of my journey in the last five years is when I read Luke 15. And I got to the end and I heard the Lord say, that elder brother, that's you. Oh, I don't want to be the elder brother. But I realized I was. I realized I'd been that critical one saying it's not fair. And I heard the father say, I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. See, he wants you to be you. So that he can say, I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. Because if we don't do that, we think that he's always been with someone else. And everything he has is someone else's. And finally, point number 15. I got it. I got it late in my preparation. I love Isaiah 61. I've, I've preached on it a lot. I, I've ministered out of it probably more than I have preached on it. And I was preparing to do something one day and I went to where, it, it, where Jesus used it. And I realized that it may well be for me and it may well be for other people the most powerful thing. You see, I read in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus returned to Nazareth where he was brought up and he stood up. And I realized that for 15 years of my life I've been privileged to live in the home of the brave and the land of the free. I love this country. Great privilege in my life to live here in this country where you get in a cab in New York and the cab driver tells you he's going to change the world. And I realized that I needed to go back to where I was brought up and stand up. The Aussies, they suffer from what they call tall poppy syndrome. It's where other people cut you down. Us Brits, we suffer from it, but we don't need any help from anyone else. We cut ourselves down. Now, I'm not saying we're the only ones, but it's not an American problem typically. It might be a problem that some people who live here have, but it's not an American problem. You have that boldness thing about you. Now, of course, a strength overemphasized becomes a weakness. So sometimes you get criticized of arrogance. I, I get it. But we, we can overemphasize our responsibility and, and, and we have other problems. I'm not saying this to criticize. I'm saying this to say, this is what I got. I came here for this. I came here to become bold and to become confident. And I didn't have that. And I realized that I was being told, go back to where you were brought up and stand up. You know, there's, there's a verse in the Bible, it's been distorted and turned into a lie. The lie is this, you know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You, you find any town, there'll be people, you know, there'll, there'll be some town, it's not doing very well. And people, they'll say, can any good thing come out of wherever? 
It was never meant to be a statement. It was a question. And the answer to the question in the Bible is, come, let me show you. See, we've, we've taken that and we've, we've beaten it up. You see, here's what I believe every one of us needs to do is to go back to where we were brought up. It might be a physical location, but it might be an emotional location. And we need to go back and stand up and be confident. I meet people that don't have very much competence. Don't have particularly great character, but they have confidence. I've prided myself most of my life on competence and character, but I lack the confidence. I watch people with more confidence and less character and competence than me, doing more than me, and I realized it's confidence. It's point number 15. I believe every one of us needs it. Because we need that confidence so that we do stand up where we were brought up. And we are able to declare the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. That's not arrogance. I'm a Christian. That means little anointed one. John says, if you abide in me, you're anointed. We're all anointed. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And so has he said the same to you. To bind up the brokenhearted, declare freedom to the prisoners, release to the captives, and declare the favorable year of the Lord. Which incidentally means the jubilee year of the Lord. And just for the record, jubilees 50 years. But this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which means 10 jubilees. So I think this is a mega jubilee. And so in closing, I just want to invite you to stand. If you're bold enough, brave enough, if you want to walk out of this house different today, if you want to return to where you were brought up and stand up and to declare the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Father, I pray today for release of boldness. I will be forever grateful. Till my last breath on this earth, I'll be grateful that I got to taste of the home of the brave and the land of the free. I'll be forever grateful, but I don't want to waste it. I don't want to waste it. I want to take it. And I ask that you would release every one of us to recognize the God-given confidence and God-given boldness that you placed in this nation as an inheritance, but you placed it in this nation as, as an example to the world of what it looks like to walk in boldness and confidence and freedom. Father, release every one of us. There are any here that struggle with that, battle with that, that this would be, as it were, their cry this week. Be strong and very courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Look straight ahead. Keep your eyes on him. Be strong. Be bold. Be very courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, I pray that for every one of us, maybe it was one point, maybe it was 15, maybe they have their own point 16, 17, whatever it is, I ask that we would get what we came here for. We'd get what we were brought into the kingdom for and we would walk with boldness and with confidence and we would declare the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Can any good thing come out of Blank? Yes. Let me show you. It looks like Steve. It looks like Ron. 
It looks like Lauren. It looks like Paul. It looks like, put your name in it. It looks like me. I'm the good thing that came out of Nazareth. And I'm going to return to where I was brought up. And I'm going to stand up. And I will declare the rest of my days how good you are. How beautiful the gospel is. I will walk in faith. I will pursue the prophetic. I will be me. I'll bloom where I was planted. And I'll give you all glory. In Jesus' name.